0: This week on Thinking Biblically, historian Howard Margolian takes us back to the early days of Nazi Germany to help us understand the dynamics that led to the Holocaust. We then discuss if there's anything that we could learn to help us effectively navigate the days in which we live. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to remind everyone to subscribe, to share, to like, and to comment. Howard Margolian is originally from Montreal, where he graduated with a BA in history from Concordia University. His studies in history continued as he went on to do both his Masters and PhD from York University in Toronto. In his career as a professional historian, Howard worked for many years for the Canadian Department of Justice, I'll say that again, the Canadian Department of Justice's War Crimes Unit. He was a consultant to and expert witness for the federal government on war crimes cases. He was also for many years a consultant to the federal government and First Nations on Aboriginal history. Howard has written two books, both on war crimes in the Canadian context, the book, Conduct Unbecoming was published in 1998 and it looks at the Canadian investigation of the brutal murder of over 150 Canadian soldiers after being captured by the Nazi SS. The book Unauthorized Entry was published in the year 2000 and it documents how Nazi war criminals leveraged holes in the Canadian immigration screening system to gain entry into this country. Howard was married to his first wife for 33 years. Uh, Randy tragically died of cancer a couple years ago, but he's a newlywed again, having married Wendy Noble this past April. Howard is an avid runner, cycler, photographer, and hunter. Howard Margolian, welcome to Thinking Biblically. Hi,
1: Alan. Glad to Uh, be here.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're here too, and it's... uh, it's, it's a multi-layered thing. Um, I wanted to share with everyone, uh, without getting into all the details, that um, before we get into some serious things in our our talk today, um, I should I wanted to explain how we know each other. Um, Howard and I went to high school together, Wager High School in the cousin suburb of, of Montreal. We were actually in music class together where we both played clarinet and uh, when howard and i uh, reconnected after about 48 years it's kind of mind-blowing <laughs> um I, I had to ask him the question is he still playing clarinet so i know i'm not
1: no it's uh it's been a long time <laughs> yeah I, I i gave that up
0: yeah yeah i actually didn't really want to play clarinet but that's another story we're not here to talk about me um but uh it's still it's It's such a heartwarming thing for me to reconnect with somebody like you after all those years. And uh, now we're gonna be talking about, as I said, a very serious topic, and so here we go. So just to start off, um, one of your expertise is the early Nazi period. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. I. Uh, I certainly, uh, I guess the early period relating specifically to kind of anti-Jewish legislation in the Third Reich, um, it's pro- I'm probably don't have the quite the same level of expertise in that as I did about wartime Nazi activities, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union. But yes, I I, I do. Um, um, it was it was it was actually a required part of my study uh, during the MA and PhD years. So yeah, um, I, I, I I can make my way through some of that.
0: Yeah, so um, one of the things that I've wondered about, and I've mentioned it before on on this podcast, is our people, um, in case it isn't clear, both Howard and I are Jewish. Always, when I talk to people about uh, my younger life, my growing up years, I often forget to mention that almost all of our social interaction was within a Jewish context. Coast St. Luke is one of the the most densest uh, Jewish populations in the world. And so for both of us, uh, how we grew up is like we we lived and breathed a Jewish life. Um, and so as Jewish people, we say never again with regard to what happened uh, to our people in the Holocaust. Um, but I've, for a long, long time, I've given thought to, you know, what does that mean, never again? Well, of course, we don't want it to happen. But if we're not aware of the social dynamics in the various places we live as in the, through the development of history, if we're not aware of what's going on, how can we ever actually bring about never again? Uh, the other thing is the chances of an exact thing like the Holocaust and all the ways that it unfolded ever happening again just like that you know, history repeats itself, but it doesn't. It's not like I, I used to do, or maybe still do. People put a song on repeat, and you get the exact same thing happening over and over and over again. That's that's not what. That's not how history repeats itself. It repeats itself similarly, but in different ways. And if we don't fully understand the dynamics that lead to such uh, atrocities, um how could we be confident that we will make sure that something similar doesn't happen again? And so we got together for coffee uh, a few weeks ago, and we, we had this conversation where I, I asked you, like, what what were the social dynamics that led to what might be the greatest of all atrocities, and whether it's the greatest or not, but you know the annihilation, the purposeful systematic annihilation of six million Jewish people uh, in Europe, under the Nazi re- regime, and uh, the killing of so many millions more, um, how does in that you know in that day Germany, which been through great trouble, but one of the most sophisticated, intelligent societies up to that point in world history. I don't know if that's an exaggeration. You could correct me. Um, how did such a place become? thus the soil of this level of, of dehumanization and brutality so so maybe you could um map out for us what were the dynamic what was going on in germany that led to the atrocity of the holocaust
1: well i guess it's uh, i mean i guess it's it in a way it's it's two things really um you are correct i mean certainly <laughs> Uh, Germans themselves, since the Second World War, have been asking that question H- How did we get to 1945? Um, because it was a very technologically advanced, economically advanced, even socially advanced, somewhat politically authoritarian. Um, for much of its history, um, and certainly after Germany was united uh, fully as a as one national entity in 1870, um, the government was. They had a parliament, and there were elections, but it was a rather top down kind of political system. But in other ways, yes, very advanced. Um, very um in in some ways more advanced in terms of what they did in terms of social welfare than in um countries we tend to think of more as western liberal democracies like france or england uh, uh, other places um the first world war was a cataclysm and it was a cataclysm for other countries than germany um I mean, empires fell um, you know with Russia you have the, the the end of Czarist rule and the replacement after a short period with a kind of a democratic government with a communist dictatorship. Austria-Hungary, this massive if weakened Empire collapses completely and is fragmented and turned into a bunch of small nation states. Uh, The Ottoman Empire, um, another, you know, perhaps weakening empire by the time the First World War broke out, also collapses at the end of the war and is replaced again by sort of smaller, um, much more national and ethnically oriented um, countries. Germany... (laughs) Germany loses some territories. Germany had small colonial possessions. Um, they uh, They did lose uh, parts of their territory in in um, in uh, Europe. Um, Alsace-Lorraine, which they had conquered in 1870, returns to France. There are some eastern territories that they lose. Um, It's still a significantly, it's a large country still in 1918 in the center of Europe. But there was also great social dislocation as a result of losing the war. Um, the monarchy or the imperial monarchy, if you want to call it that of Kaiser Wilhelm II, collapses, he goes into exile. It's replaced with a democracy, um, with a uh, which also had a democratic constitution. Um, but there are great fractures in that society as a result of losing the war, because there is a significant element in that society, which believed that Germany didn't lose the war because of what happened on the battlefield. They lost it because there were communists, Jewish war shirkers and profiteers. I mean, there was a whole slew of people who Germans, let's say of a more conservative bent, would have blamed for the losses. Now that's not true. Germany lost on the battlefield. Um, I think most military historians would agree, but, um, but this idea of, of kind of finding blame inside the country became a powerful weapon, I guess, for, for people on the more conservative side or or the right wing side of German, German politics. Um, let me stop. When, can I just
0: stop you there for a minute? Yeah. Cause one thing kind of moved in, into the other. So I just want things to be clear. So prior to world war one, uh, Europe, uh, uh, and into Russia, uh, there were not that they were all empires, but there was a a lot more. Uh, oh, I'll, let me say it differently. Following World War One, there was this incredible uh, fracture fracture that started happening and um, a, a breaking up of of larger nation groups, and so you had. A fract fr- is fracturization a word uh, of of European na- uh, the whole new Euro- European national thing was changed had changed I'm not saying you could say it better than me.
1: Well, it's just it's just that it, what you actually had. I mean, uh, if we're we're eventually, of course, going to have to mention Adolf Hitler's name. Adolf Hitler was born in a small town in. Um, Austria but Austria was the seat of what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire um he's born in the 1880s and there was it was still an, an empire which ruled over vast parts of sort of central and especially southeastern Europe um and there are it's a multinational empire uh, right so the Czechs the word i was and looking and for Poles. yeah
0: yeah the word i was yeah so europe had become fragmented into smaller nation states.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay,
0: and um, so there was that was happening. That was new.
1: Yes, that would have been that. That that that, that, okay, would have so that been was new. These, these empires, these multinational empires, had been around for, in some cases, hundreds of years. Right, and, and then so suddenly there's this great splitting up. Um,
0: yeah, of, all over the place, of sort empires. of thing. Yeah. And, and okay, then the, the then you moved on to um, the loss of of the war uh, by the Germans, and you're saying it's clear they lost on the battlefield. They simply they lost the war they were fighting, but yeah. in the German mind, they were already beginning to scapegoat um, people like like the Jewish people and others for their loss.
1: Well, there were, I mean, even during, uh, to give you an example, during the, during the First World War, the German Jews were very patriotic, they were very well integrated and assimilated into German society, they saw themselves as Germans first and as Jews second, Jews just Jewishness just happened to be well, this is cultural, religious, whatever. But they saw that. So so when in August, the First World War begins in earnest, I mean, the Jews, like everybody else in Germany, they're rushing to join up that everyone thought it was going to be a short war. How silly was that? But they join up. Um, They, you know, basically virtually everyone in the Jewish community who could serve did serve. Um, the, the Jews as a percentage of the German population actually um, suffered casualties at a slightly higher rate in the First World War and also are decorated for bravery at a slightly, if you look purely with numbers, sometimes these numbers are meaningless because there were only five to six hundred thousand Jews living in Germany, a country of well over 60 million, um, you know, at the time of the First World War. And um, So, but what happened is, as Germany began to suffer defeats on the battlefield, particularly from 1916 onward, when it it was clear that they were not gonna win the war quickly, that that, um, they were suffering huge numbers of casualties, the German economy was beginning to suffer. It was reaching its kind of the end point of its ability to continue with massive war production. Even the German high command or certain people in it, uh, one of the things they did, they, 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 they invoked this sort of we're going to see how many Jews are actually serving in the German army. Um, and they the assumption amongst all these generals was, oh, well, the Jews, they're shirkers and cowards and they're profiteers. Of course, what they found was that the Jews, as I said, <laughs> were actually serving in exactly the same percentages as all the other Germans and and were being decorated for bravery and were dying on the battlefield and in trenches. Um, So they actually suppressed this. But that was that was during the war. That was there was already an attempt to scapegoat Jews, in, almost like as a have it, if you're a right winger in Germany, it's almost like you want it as an insurance policy in your pocket. Well, if we do actually lose this thing, we'll blame the Jews, right? You know, they just they didn't they didn't step up. The you know they're profiteers, whatever. It was all nonsense. It was rubbish. Um, yeah, when
0: when we when we met for coffee a few weeks ago, you didn't bring up this part of the story, and so I just want to park here for for a second, sure, because in understanding the dynamics, uh, we would need to 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 ask the question: Why already were the Jews the ones to scapegoat? Um, what was happening in in because. And a lot of people understand, and you did mention this, that, you know, German people were very, very, were quite assimilated into German society. As you said, they saw themselves as Germans first and Jews second. Um, that wasn't true in all, the, all Jewish experience in Europe, but that was very true in Germany. Um, and, it, uh, and yet there was this already, this layer of what would become known as anti-Semitism um, at work in German society. Do you understand the, any of the roots of that? Like, why was it well, I so? Mean,
1: I mean, there's of course there's there's two kinds of anti-Semitism that that at a certain point sort of crossed paths. Was one of there's there's the traditional anti-Semitism which goes back basically almost millennia, and I mean obviously as as religious prejudice or bigotry that existed in what was what became the German national state. So in all these little kingdoms and principalities that eventually united or were united uh, mainly by military means to become the German state in 1870, that's already there. Um, but um, probably even 30, 20, 30 years before that, while German, well, while, well, well German society may have still had anti-Semitic tendencies it was also facing from outside and particularly France it was was being modernized Uh, some of it is economic modernization but even politically to some extent it's being modernized and so some of that religious bigotry it's not that it completely disappears but it kind of becomes almost this okay yeah yeah you know There's the Jews rejected Christ and there's all that. okay. so there's all that stuff. But then, of course, what you also have with modernization, you also have the rise of more nationalist movements based on ethnicity or what is seen as ethnicity or race. And at some point, and I can't identify exactly when that happens, because I think it's uh, it's something that happens over time. There are elements in German society, and particularly within the German elite, which begin to equate Jewishness, not with a kind of a separateness because of religion, but a separateness because of racial characteristics. Again, this... (laughs) probably is you know it should have been seen even then as complete nonsense if you actually i've seen photographs of the jewish soldiers who served in the german army in the first world war and many of them are just as blonde haired I, I can't they're black and white pictures so i can't tell if they're blue-eyed but that many of them like they are indistinguishable from a sort of a, a facial or whatever or a body type point of view from other germans um, you know, the, 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 the people who the people who wanted to use this racial separateness, which is largely nonsense, but people who wanted to use this basically, um, you know, made things up. So they would put out in this began in the later 19th century, it was more obviously much more prevalent, not in German society generally, but in right wing circles. You know, they put out these kind of images of Jews, you know, looking like like, uh, you know, completely overweight, huge hooked nose kind of people who, you know, um, are are milking the German economy just for their own benefit. You see some of this propaganda, which then gets repeated, of course, much more widely during the Nazi era. So there is there's always anti-Semitism there, but it it changes in fundamental ways as you get towards the end of the nineteenth century. it It becomes more, let's say, racialized and maybe has less to do with the older religious prejudices of of people in certain parts of Germany.
0: So there's this bit of a tension here. Uh, so during the during the war, first world War, you have this layer of anti-semitism and yet the the jewish people were well integrated in the society and were as you said uh pro- proportionally represented in the military yeah and uh so for the most part as far as the jewish people are concerned we are germans we're fighting on on behalf of the germans then the war ends and what happens
1: well um the German army, um, in other words, what, what happened after the First World War should, it, it, it probably, it, what happened after, let's put it this way, what happened after the, the Second World War, where Germany was occupied and basically, you know, what was left of Germany was occupied by various occupying armies, did not really happen after the First World War which tended then, so you had the French army kind of, they took back Alsace-Lorraine. They did occupy certain areas, uh, the Ruhr region of coal mining. But basically, when the German army returned from losing the First World War, you don't have this same devastation within Germany proper. You don't have this feeling of, oh my God, there's French soldiers everywhere. There's Russian soldiers everywhere. There's British soldiers everywhere, as was the case after the Second World War. So again, this tends to feed that narrative. Well, you know, our boys are coming back, but like they still have all their weapons. You know, what's what's going on here? How did we lose this? And it it kind of so it, it tends again to feed this. It was called the stab in the back theory. That's what um, both people at the time, and then historians subsequently called it. And they didn't just blame Jews. They also blamed G- German left-wing politicians, um, uh, German communists, obviously, um, even liberals, German more liberal-minded German politicians. Um, you know, the, the, the blame game starts as the German army returns um, also, uh, the German economy was on the verge of collapse by the time Germany lost the war and surrendered in November of nineteen eighteen. But things then go from bad to worse. There is a there is an attempt to bring in and ultimately a what w- was called at, it was called the Weimar Constitution because it was framed by German politicians at the uh, city of Weimar in Germany. Uh, Is a very democratically oriented constitution. It provides, you know, for the individual rights and and uh, provides for parliamentary elections and for. Um, uh, you know, basically, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of proportional, a form of proportional representation. So really, even small parties can, you know, can get a few seats in the German parliament if they win enough votes. Um, But, but what, what, what I meant was when things go from bad to worse is, of course, they surrender in 1918, there's an armistice. But then for the next year or so, there are these negotiations amongst the Allied powers um, about a final peace treaty with Germany. And that became known in 1919 when it was adopted as the Versailles Treaty, because, of course, it was signed in Versailles, France. Um, That imposes huge economic and military disabilities on Germany, on this new republic that has just formed. Um, this republic that is already drowning in wartime debt, uh, beginning to see the um, you know serious inflation in the economy, and now you've got these Allied powers, Britain and France in particular, who are saying, "Well, the Germans are going to have to pay for the war. They started this damn thing." So we you know we we're going to we're going to milk their economy they're going to have to pay us in perpetuity you know for the next 50 years and so there are these war reparations paid by germany of course the german armed forces are reduced to almost nothing because there's this fear particularly on the french side that the germans if they're allowed to grow their army again they're going to do the same thing that they did in 1914 so you have you have on top of the initial shock of losing you also have Already, um, great wounding of national pride, this feeling that we are being blamed for something that maybe all the European powers should take some responsibility for. And of course, you've got greater and greater economic dislocation, which resulted, I, I, it kind of came to a head in 1923. I don't know if you've ever seen photographs of certain what was going on in certain German cities, but the inflation was so bad that you basically see people pushing wheelbarrows full of Reichsmarks, which are essentially worthless, and and they're using it to maybe buy a, a half a loaf of bread, right? You know, so some ludicrous amount of money, right, just to maybe buy enough bread to get you through the week. So, I mean, it, it, it that's part of what happens. Now, after that, I know we've talked about this when we met a few weeks ago, but after that, I mean, once the German economy in 1923-24 begins to kind of the, the German politicians of the day begin to try to bring some sanity and control, that and the fact that there is some money starting to come in from foreign investors, particularly in the United States, There's a period of several years in the 1920s when actually the German economy begins to recover. And people start to think, oh, okay, maybe this Republic isn't such a bad idea. Yeah, we're still PO'd about losing the war. We still don't understand why we have to pay these reparations, particularly to France. But it started to look like, okay, maybe we're going to find a way out of this. And then, of course, what happens in 1929? Stock market crash in the United States. What happens in 1930? Great Depression. And then you have another round of economic. So just when Germany appears to be coming out of it, you have an even greater, arguably, a greater economic cataclysm. And of course, by by 1930, of course, what's happening is once once that happens, parties that had really been like the Nazis that had really been. But other very right wing and in some cases, anti-Semitic parties, um, which had really been marginalized in the 1920s, all of a sudden are getting votes again because people are, again, looking for somebody to blame. Um, They don't understand why their current governments come, you know, usually coalitions of different sort of center right or center left parties don't seem to be able to manage the economy and and these problems. And so they start looking elsewhere. Now, there was also the Communist Party, I should say, at that time also saw an increase in their vote. So you you get the the extremes starting again to rise in Germany on both the left and the right, but more on the right.
0: I I know this might be a difficult, difficult one to answer. But do you think the motive for something different, something new, something other, was that being driven more by blame or we need an alternative because the current thing isn't working?
1: Well, I, I mean, that's a that's a that's pro, that may be a question actually more for a political scientist than a historian. But I would say, I mean, you know, you have a you have a, a democracy, but it is even when it's working, it is beset by some pretty extreme people and pretty extreme movements. Now, in the 1920s, as I said, those movements tend to recede because the economy begins to improve. Um, Some of it is blame. I mean, a lot of Germans, and I should point out again, if you read the letters and the diaries of a lot of German Jews, particularly those who managed to get out of Germany after Hitler came to power and went to the United States or britain or elsewhere they were they were asking themselves why is this happening to germany like wh- why is the world picking on us so th- again they are as nationalist and and they are as victimized whether rightly or wrongly as the rest of german society german jews are as patriotic as the, as the germans and they're saying like we, we, this can't continue um I guess that's one of those things where you, you have to say, particularly if you were Jewish in Germany, be careful what you wish for because if you if you if you are looking for something other than the Weimar Republic, unfortunately in Germany there were, you know, what were you going to pick? Well, you pick a communist dictatorship, or you pick these right wing kind of some more nationalist than others, but they you know, these very right wing parties among uh, of which the Nazis for a long time were just one of many. Um, and, you know, so sometimes it's <laughs> sometimes it's better to stay the course. But the, I think there were just too many factors in Germany that pushed too many people to say, I, I don't want to lose my job. Uh, you know, I want to be able to feed my family. I don't want my savings to be worth literally nothing. Um these guys are saying they can do it yeah they've got some weird ideas the nazis i'm talking about yeah they've got some weird ideas about the jews and they've got some weird ideas about some other stuff but you know what (laughs) they say they can do it um maybe i should park my vote there i mean one of the things i I think what i'm saying is i know we discussed this is these things happen usually incrementally They don't happen necessarily all at once at the point of a bayonet. It's the the breakdown, political dissolution, social breakdown, I think happens over time. It looks, I mean, when we look back on it in retrospect, what happened in Germany seems to happen pretty quickly from the end of the First World War to, you know, basically 1933. It's about 15 years. Um, But it's, it's to me it, i would still say it's kind of incremental and there were things that had they happened differently then the nazis may have just remained a footnote in history but you you had two economic cataclysms you had the great inflation from about 1920 to 1923 in germany and then basically a few years later you have the worldwide economic collapse the great depression which hits Germany pretty hard. Not that's not to say it didn't hit the United States, Canada, other places just as hard, but German society, I think was maybe what le- the, the, the democratic impulses were maybe less robust there um, than they were in countries that, that in the end, never really went to the either to the extreme left or the extreme right.
0: So in Germany, you, so you, at the time you had both uh, economic struggles that and you explained pretty well the the ups and downs of that but then there was also carrying the shame of what had occurred following the the loss of of world war 1 um, but what we're not looking at it's not as if there was this nazi revolt that you know that just arisen sort of out of nowhere and then took over that happened incrementally Right. Um, I and should
1: say there was an attempt by the Nazi party in 1923 to do a coup d'etat and it failed miserably.
0: OK, OK. You
1: so know, they try failure. it in they try it in Bavaria and basically a few Bavarian policemen put a stop to that with uh, some well-placed rifle shots. Hitler gets arrested, thrown in jail for about a year as a kind of a seditious individual and. Um, and actually, that was one of the things that convinced Hitler and some of the others in the Nazi leadership, OK, we cannot overthrow the German state by force because we will lose that game every time. So that's when they begin to adopt, um, you know, this, OK, we'll play the political game. We'll try to get people elected to the parliament. Even now, though, their so- intention was once they got once they got control of the parliament, their intention was that will be the last election.
0: But this 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 is so important, I think. So so Hitler and, and company play their their card in Bavaria. So people know who these who they are. Okay. They decide to change tactic and it works.
1: Yeah, but they had to be patient, obviously.
0: But it's still it but it still worked. Work.
1: It, 90- it didn't who work they- in the 1920s because they had very few seats in the in the German right. parliament. They only begin to get a lot of seats after the depression sets in in Germany in 1930.
0: But then so the question the the is, yeah. but if people, if if the population knew the nature of this thing because they had played their cards the way they did in Bavaria, how could it be that they get, they get more and more power that ends up resulting in them taking over? Like why would people vote for them well, in sufficient I mean, numbers?
1: Okay. I... In some ways, uh, first of all, some of it is just kind of the Nazis in the 1920s are very clever about they, uh, the way they they play the political game. The messaging never really changes, though. They, depending on the audience they're speaking to, sometimes they mute it. Right? They. I mean, Hitler and some of the other Nazi leadership know in the 1920s that if they're going to go talk to a chamber of commerce or they're going to talk to, you know, some big German industrialists, if they start this ranting and raving, oh, the Jews, this and the commies that they like, they know those people are not going to listen and they're never going to listen to them again. So they have to, they have to moderate the message or kind of leave that part of the message out. Um, and some, some audiences would be more receptive than others. But really, what, what, they are, what the Nazis were very adept at doing was playing on people's fears. Fear of today, fear of tomorrow, fear of their neighbors in some cases, whether they were Jewish or not um and maybe even kind of this almost like self-hatred like wh- why is this happening what's wrong with us as germans right i mean first we lose this war where we at the, at the beginning at least we were we were winning and then Now we can't seem to manage an economy. It's not. It can't be our fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. It's 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 France's fault. It's uh, those perfidious British. It's it's the Jews here. It's somebody else's fault. It's not ours. Um, And so the Nazis were, I think, were very adept at at playing to the audience they were speaking to so if you're talking to a bunch of farmers in Bavaria you, and you're the Nazis you have one message if you're talking to a bunch of you know big industrialists in Dusseldorf you're going to have a different message and it's going to be delivered differently it's not going to be this shrieking you know Hitler shrieking and yelling he's going to be he's going to he's not even going to wear his brown shirt he's probably going to come in a suit and a tie and speak very in modulated tones to, to satisfy that audience. I mean, in, in some ways, they were just the Germans were just better at maybe at mass po- sorry, the Nazis were maybe just better at mass politics
0: than some of the other parties were. Were there no voices saying, "But he's a monster, he's a monster?
1: Well, I mean, there were look, even in the, even in the German elite, because ultimately Hitler gets, they, the Nazis never get enough votes or seats in the parliament to have a majority in the parliament. They, they, they get into power in um, uh, January, late January, 1933, because Hitler is appointed chancellor because there is a kind of an escape clause in the Weimar Constitution, which allows, in certain circumstances, the president of the Reich, which in that in at that time was Paul Hindenburg, a uh, First World War general and hero, but very elderly, very decrepit already. Um, And they are basically they basically appoint them because they don't see any alternative. And in fact, Hitler's first cabinet has actually more conservative, more traditional German conservatives, right wingers, but not Nazis than it does Nazis. I think Goering was in his first cabinet and there were a couple of other lower level positions. But most of Hitler's cabinet, while he's chancellor, are actually just old line German conservatives. And those people, like everyone else, mistakenly thought we can control this guy. He's useful. You know, he's got this big base of support, Um, but we'll control him. Um, Maybe in a few years we'll discard him um, you know, or will, will marginalize him for now. He's useful. We don't really have an alternative on the political side. We're certainly not going to go to the social Democrats or the communists. (laughs) Like we're not going to rely on them to have a part, you know, to make a part, some kind of parliamentary majority. And again, this was part of the underestimation, particularly by the German elite of the day of Hitler and the Nazis. So some people, yes, may have recognized him as, a, as a, what you called a monster. I think most people kind of saw him as a, this slightly odd, bellowing sort of, you know, right wing crank who, who had a political base, who, who had enough support that they could get things done, perhaps, you know, without sometimes bypassing parliament or whatever. So, so something's I mean, not clear it's, again it's yes. not like like it the the monstrosity of hitler comes after he takes full power so before we get to um, that's that it's not to, because we we have the benefit of hindsight
0: yeah I, right know. but yeah. who is when you were talking about the the we um and how the the nazi party become and you even said they weren't all nazis in this in this group that hitler was was leading and that to me that's still not clear so, um who was the we that gave them the, the ball to carry uh, politically, thinking that, oh, at least they can get things done?
1: Well, it's it's the German presidency. It's to some extent President Hindenburg, but really it's kind of the people around him. So it's both the bureaucracy that's around him. Again, traditional. they are traditional German conservatives. They are not Nazis. They the, are
0: right-wingers. So the, if I understand, correctly, the mm-hmm. parliament, therefore, did have all these various parties and nobody yeah. could like get a good enough coalition to right. try to get exactly. things done. And, and yet then you had this other up and coming group that represented a larger base and looked like if they would hand Hitler and company the ball, at least they can get some good things done. Right. Is that yeah. it? Okay. And they were willing yeah. to put up with what they thought was nonsense. And and after a while, we could probably just dis, discard this guy once we kind of get our footing and this sort of thing. Is that what's going yeah. on?
1: I mean, to, to a certain extent, yeah. And you have to remember, I mean, a, in much of Germany, a lot of people may have had views about the Jews, but many of them would never have met have met a Jew. I mean, the Jews were largely concentrated in a few large cities that, like I said, there were probably less than 600,000 of them in a, in a very, you know, a country with 60, 70 million people. So a lot of people would never, you know, they would have had that traditional maybe prejudice about the Jews, but they prob- may never have met one. Right. That's so you know, that's the similar. Anti- the anti-Semitism.
0: That proportion, that's that proportion similar to Canada. Right. I want to get a picture of it.
1: Right. I mean, so it's I'm not saying that there weren't people. I think certainly people on the political left, not the communists, but the you know, the social democrats who represented probably the second largest political grouping after the Nazis in 1932-33. They would have been the ones who had the, the second most seats in the German Reichstag or parliament. Um, some of them certainly knew what Hitler was, but nobody is really at that point conceiving of, oh, my God, you know, first of all, I guess, Mein Kampf, which Hitler wrote, where he lays out pretty much his plan for everything, including European conquest probably it's one of the most purchased and least read books, you know, in German history, right? So it's, it was like 900 pages long. It's very difficult to read because Adolf is kind of all over the map and that's, he actually had help writing it. I, I, I can't even imagine if he had written it entirely on his own, what, what that draft would have looked like. It probably would have been incoherent. Um, I think Rudolf Hess, who was his secretary um, in the early years of the Nazi party, helped him write it and I guess he sort of made some parts at least, you know, sound somewhat rational um, or at least somewhat coherent, let's say. but. You know so people are not thinking, oh my God, if we vote this guy in or we we insert this guy in, oh my God, what you know, the first thing he's going to do is declare war on Russia or the first oh France, or the first thing he's going to do is start, you know, interning Jews in concentration like they, they're not thinking in those terms because it's not immediately apparent. Like I said, these things happen incrementally. and I guess if there are any lessons to be learned, from history, because uh, one of the things you, you, you talked early on about you know how so history sometimes repeats itself, to me, I, I never think history repeats itself, but th- there are certainly s- similar things can happen. But to me, the important thing as a historian is always to look at context and context matters. There is a very specific context to what is going on in Germany, particularly in the early 1930s. Um, And context is not excuses. Like, uh, I want to make that clear. I'm not saying that, oh, if only for a different context, terrible things wouldn't have happened. But I think in order to understand what happened there, I think one does have to have some understanding of the, the social, the political, and, Maybe particularly the economic consequence uh, um, context. And also, maybe, yes, this idea of kind of national humiliation, national shame, national victimization. Why are these allied powers, even 15 years later, still? pulling money out of German, you know, forcing us to pay these reparations. I mean, France's economy is up and running again, Britain's is, why are we still paying millions and millions of Reichsmarks every every year to these powers? The war was over a decade and a half ago. Um so that again, it's not an excuse. Um but you could you could maybe if you try to put yourself in the place of the average German. Not the elite, not members of the military, not the not the ex- political extremists, but just the average German. Maybe a lower middle class, middle class, has a trade, got two or three kids, just trying to get by. And it just looks, he's, even if it doesn't happen to him, he sees his neighbor losing his job and maybe his house. Um, he sees his own savings, you know, starting to wither away. Um, He sees kind of maybe a way of life, even sort of kind of seeming to disappear and being replaced with something that he finds alien or whatever. And so he says to himself, uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, this guy worries me a little bit. Um, He seems like a bit wild at times. And some of the things he says, but I don't know, maybe I should park my vote there. Um, because he at least seems to have a plan. And he's talking to me. He's saying, I I feel your pain, to quote Bill Clinton, (laughs) I think at a certain point when he was running in 1992 the first time. I mean, Hitler never said, I feel your pain. But that was sometimes the message, I think, that German voters got. Yeah, he understands it. Those those German industrialists, they don't care about me. The communists don't care about me. The, you know, the middle level power uh, uh, parties, you know, the Social Democrat, they don't seem to care about me. This guy's talking to me, you know. So, again, I, and I have to say there there is evidence that even in 1933, in the last free election in Germany, um, there were some Jews who voted for Hitler despite the obvious anti-semitic messages and messaging
0: so <laughs> so on ba- yeah. so on balance, on balance even for these some of these jewish people when they weighed the, the 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 good versus the bad to them the good was significantly outweighed the bad to the point that they could vote for him
1: yeah now i mean i would say probably most jews uh tended to vote for kind of the more centrist parties there was a there was a catholic party that apparently got because they they you know they were sort of middle of the road they tended to get the jewish vote there would have been a lot of jews who voted for the social democrats there also there were some sort of right of center parties that were not crazy right of center that the jews would have voted for but i mean you have to remember again a lot of jews They had been through the First World War. Um, They felt the same humiliation. Um, They felt an obligation to the German soldiers, including the more than 12,000 of their Jewish brothers who were buried in places like Belgium and France, who had died fighting for Germany. They felt some obligation like that this can't continue, this humiliation, this whatever. So yeah, I mean, some people, even as late as then, knowing the messaging, would have said, Well, yeah, but you know, that other party I used to vote for is some of their candidates also said some nasty things about the Jews. Yeah, it'll pass. Yeah, even if he gets in, he's not going to do all the things, you know, that everybody is warning us about. You know, we're not going to lose our rights. Okay, German, so you know, did you mean German- that, though?
0: So so how are we saying everybody's warning us about and this? This is one of the things I'm most concerned about is, you know, where are the voices uh, who, are, who are saying, you know, uh, this is dangerous. We're dealing with a monster here. Because for the most part, I'm hearing that people were generally aware of, we'll call them his crazy ideas, but were willing to put up with them for a bunch of reasons because the good outweighed the bad. Um, but it it sounds like there were were there warnings? No, no, no., well, there
1: were there would have been warnings. Certainly, like I said, there were certain um, uh, social democratic politicians, um, uh, many who had been in parliament, uh, long standing who who raised some alarm bells about what the nazis were talking about but it wasn't necessarily really so much in the kind of the 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 realm just of anti-semitic policy it might have been just more generally about you know do you really want to give this crank control of the german economy do you really want you know these brown shirts this kind of paramilitary organization that he's built up, do you really want them replacing the good solid German police? You know, um, but again, a lot of, like I said, even some Jews and certainly a lot of people who may have had reservations about Hitler also believed, well, but you know, the, the, the German elite, the German army, they're gonna keep this guy in check. So yeah, it's really, it's in the end, a lot of what he's talking about is just gonna stay as rhetoric. Right. It's, it's something to get elected. It's, it's not ever really going to happen. And of course it does happen, but even then it happens slowly, especially in the first couple of years of Hitler's rule. So and are we, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's <laughs> are, the, the context. We,
0: just, you know, getting a little understanding and, you know, talking today, we could be talking for hours on on this and then get into so many of the details um, but are we doomed if the, if these sorts of dynamics of even when a, a person publishes a book with his agenda and plays his card in in Bavaria and every and you know, people are going, well, you know, we, we think he's a crank and, and all the rest. And yet he ends still ends up getting this support and and the beast ma- massively manifests. Like, what hope do we have of navigating a world in which this sort of thing, I don't mean to be laughing, this is very serious, how do we navigate a world with, with these kinds of dynamics? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say there were people,
1: even in, let's say, in the United States, there there were radio broadcasts in the, after the Great Depression set in. Um, and particularly after Roosevelt at Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected in 1932, um, you know, the, there were voices in the United States that were spewing all kinds, including anti-Semitic hatred and hatred against the Roosevelt administration because of they were, it was felt they were using government um, at, too heavy handedly to try to deal with the great depression. So, there were voices, there were radio broadcasts, people heard these things, but somehow in, in a country like the United States, that kind of stuff, while it, it, it did reach a level of popularity uh, in the 1930s that it had never attained prior to and never attained, has never attained since, it, it never resulted in a kind of a collapse of the society or a a degeneration, let's say, of the society into people, you know, sort of not totally not trusting one another and and willing to vote for crazies. Um, it, so, again, that's why I'm saying there, there's a context and even though I would argue that the Great Depression hit the United States at least as hard as it hit Germany, with maybe less initially, at least, when until Roosevelt's administration begins to do certain things from a social welfare point of view. Um, initially, at least, I would argue that maybe the Great Depression hit the Americans harder than it did the Germans. That's not to say the economy in Germany, because it was a mess. And there was widespread unemployment beginning in 1930, 31. Um, but the reactions were somewhat different. So there can be, there can be, there will, I think there will always be, particularly in more democratic societies, there will always be crazies. Always. There will always be people on the fringes who propagate or buy into wild conspiracy theories, um who advocate the most vile kinds of, whether it's racist policies or other, you know things. But I again, I think contextually, I, I would I would point, for example, to the United States, and I would say, well, why was it in an economy that was arguably at least as bad, if not worse, than the German economy in the 1930s, why did why did those groupings, while they certainly gained support, um, and, and then once the war started, of course, that you know people like Charles Lindbergh saying we we need to stay out of it. This is a problem. You know, we're being forced into the war by the Jews or by the British or by the communists or whatever. There were there were there were large movements of people who bought into this kind of stuff, but they never became anywhere close to a political majority. So why is that? And I would argue, you know, it's context, right? There are different, there are maybe different political impulses at that time amongst the average American person. Um, You know, obviously, if you lost your job, and, and you're going to a soup kitchen to feed your family, yeah, you may be You may be the kind of fodder that that groups like Nazis and others and communists might want to try to convert to their cause because they'll say, it's not your fault, right? It's somebody else is causing this. But the fact that they could never really gain much of a footing in the United States at the same time as there's a Nazi party, which does in Germany, and of course, once they get power, there's no more elections, and then they can impose a, a gradually a totalitarian dictatorship on Germany. Uh, I mean, but again, I I I just I I hate to keep repeating myself, but I would go back to context. I think context matters. So, right. So I don't know how. I mean, I guess what you're think, asking so what? me am I am I worried about you know democratic societies here? Yeah, I do, but. I guess I'm 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 not as worried as I would have been if I had looked at Germany in the 1930s, early 1930s. Um, so why?
0: Okay, so you're you're saying you're you're contrasting the U.S. and Germany at the time of the Depression. Both countries have uh, people unemployed in the food line. Mm-hmm. Both had some similar influences. But wait, well, yes, similar or not similar, uh, similar and different,
1: well, I mean, obviously,. Um... <sighs> There was a German-American Bund, for example. These were people of German origin, uh, living in the United States, uh, probably uh, mostly American citizens by that point, but maybe first generation or second generation. And they they adopted a lot of the kind of Hitlerite stuff in the 1930s. They, they wore sort of, you know, the same kinds of paramilitary stuff when they would do marches. And they would do a lot of this stuff in New York City because they saw that. that. That is the hub of world Jewry, right? You know, they would say this stuff. But I mean, the, the, again, I would, I would, I would just say that, you know, a lot, there was still, there was an American context to all of that. And while people may have, it's possible that some people did certainly fall prey to that kind of messaging in the United States, it was nothing like, what happened in Germany and to some extent in fascist Italy um, because again, of, of different sort of a different political culture um, maybe a different culture more generally. Um, so, I, I mean, that's why I always hesitate to try to draw too many parallels Um and that's why I brought up the issue. But of the you're, you're actually States. saying
0: no. But you're actually saying you're not trying a parallel completely because the United States didn't go that didn't go that route.
1: Well, they didn't go that route. So then the question becomes: Well, if conditions are just as bad in the United States in let's say 1933 as they are in. Germany, and maybe in some other parts of Europe in 1933, why does Germany go one way in the United States pretty much stay the course, even though have, there are certainly voices in the United States that are saying, no, what those Germans are doing, that's the way we need to go.
0: Okay, so that didn't get enough traction in the US, but it got c- complete traction in, in Germany. In Germany. And the thing that I, I'm most concerned about is where are the people of goodwill? Where are the people that see what's going on that are truly concerned and how come their voices get silenced.
1: Okay, I mean I'm going to I'm going to raise an issue that I think we talked about and it's not really historical it's actually very recent. Um I I will not comment on other people's vaccination status or whatever. Just as an example, okay? Okay. I I do not like vaccine mandates. I don't like people I don't like politicians saying that oh you have to do it for the good of the country and all that I think I I thought that was nonsense right from the beginning but I have been vaccinated three times um and I actually feel really stupid about it particularly the third vaccine like a, because of course it was a half dose of the first two um, you know the same one, so you know five variants ago or whatever. Um,
0: and by the so, way, by folks, there's nothing about COVID or vaccines in my in my notes no, here. Just, and in I'm our prep raised... time, in our prep time, we didn't talk about COVID okay, or vaccines. So the, wanna... okay, Howard, Howard, you're just, you're on your own at this point. Continue.
1: I'm just all I'm saying is I. So even though I had great misgivings about those policies. I went along with them. Now I've decided I'm not going to anymore because it's It seems to me now pseudo scientific, but for basically more than a year I did. And I don't, I consider myself somebody who's, you know, reasonably intelligent, who looks at things carefully, who, who doesn't just automatically do what the government says I should do. And yet I did it. So I I guess what I'm trying to do, maybe I'm appealing for sympathy, not so much for me, but for the average German, like I said, who voted, you know, who, who supported the Nazis, whether he or she had misgivings about them, however great or small those misgivings were, because it was a way to go along to get along. So I'm not, I, this is not, I, I understand this is not about vaccines, but I'm just taking a tiny little thing where I, I have, you know, if you speak to my friends, if you speak to Wendy, like if you speak to people that I will, they will tell you how critical I have been about all of this. And yet three times I allowed, basically I said, well, yeah, but you know, for the, for whatever, for my good, or maybe not my good, but to go along, to get along, I'll do this. So And I don't live, I'm not living in that kind of situation that the average German worker was or the average German farmer or the average German office worker who had real fear for their jobs, for their livelihoods, for can I even feed my family? What is the future going to hold so I, can, I guess what I'm saying is, given what I did in a very small way, I kind of understand. Yeah, they voted. And, and I even understand maybe those patriotic Jews who, even as late as 1932, 33, said, yeah, this guy's a bit of a whack job, but I, I don't think there's anybody else on the political horizon who is, who, who is saying anything that is going to solve the problems the way this guy is. Now were, were these people all wrong? Yes, they were wrong. And And of course, with hindsight, which is why I brought up the <laughs> the vaccine thing because I'm saying now with hindsight, I was wrong, but let's move past that. I'm just saying like it's it's very easy for intelligent, rational, patriotic, <laughs> basically decent people to persuade themselves about something, that they they later then regret. I, I'm sure many of the people who voted for Hitler, even before the Allied bombs began to fall on their cities, I'm sure there were many people who said, Oh boy, what was I thinking back in 33? You know, what did I did what, what was I thinking? Did, why this guy really? But of course, by then, if you said that publicly, the Gestapo would pay you a visit to your house and you might disappear. I hope that I mean. Yeah, like I said, yeah, I yeah. get, I, off I get what the you're saying. Though, thing. I was just I was just using it as an example, yeah. a small example of going along to get along.
0: But are we doomed to that? Do you think we're doomed to that? Is there is there a way? And of course, this is not about whether to be vaccinated or not to be vaccinated. Uh, it has to do with um, and what you're saying is you're. Even you, whose normal posture is a certain way, you end up surprising yourself about a decision, about a medical procedure that you now regret. What mm-hmm. is it about human beings that do this? Uh, uh, go along to get along, and is there any hope for us? And I, you know, you mentioned you're not a political scientist. You, I don't know if you know. Do you have? Can you can answer a question like this by? Well, in your in your study of history. Have you not encountered people that that had what it took to stand despite what the crowds were doing?
1: Yes, there, there were. There were in, in Nazi Germany. And what, um, what the, makes... The problem was there weren't enough of them.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: And what makes <laughs> and, the and, difference? And, I mean, there weren't enough of them early on. I mean, obviously, once a totalitarian regime... Gets in place and it had controls all the different apparatuses, uh, you know, uh, particularly the security, the various security apparatuses of that state. It is extremely difficult to overthrow it from inside. Um, it, 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 it's not impossible, and I mean the the book that you had me read by Rod Dreher about um, "Live Not by Lies." I mean, he talks about that. Um, that that people people did small things in their own way to resist, and he's talking more about what happened in the Warsaw Pact countries, the Eastern Bloc under communism. So people did things, but it wasn't by they didn't pick up right. Occasionally, they did in Hungary. There was a you know a, a revolt in 1956, ruthlessly and quickly suppressed um, by by the Red Army. Um, In 1968, there was actually in in Czechoslovakia, there was a peaceful, you know, there was a move towards kind of trying to liberalize the politics amongst certain members of the Communist Party there. And of course, what happens, the Warsaw Pact comes in with tanks and soldiers and, you know, basically suppresses that. So once a, once a totalitarian regime is in place you you are not likely going with force to be able to overthrow it um but th- there are ways to resist it but again it becomes a question of at what point do people reach the point where they say it's no longer enough to go along together So, okay, after three vaccines, I reached that point because I realized how absurd it was for me to get the third vaccine, which was a half dose of the same vaccine that I got back way back, which was five variants ago. So different people in Nazi Germany, in the Warsaw Pact countries, in the Soviet Union reached, probably reached that, that decision, but at different times. They didn't all do it. It wasn't a, a sudden realization that everybody came to. Oh, my God, we're living a lie, like this book says, um, and that our, our government is lying to us. It, it's based on lies. There's nothing true about this. There's nothing good about about a, a communist dictatorship or a fascist dictatorship. But, but people reach these. Some people never reach it. Some people are prepared to go along, to get along for their whole lives. Um, I think I think what you're asking me actually is not even a political science. It's a human nature question. And I don't really have the answer for it. I can only tell you my own experience, um, you know, that that I have now regrets about what I did a few months ago. Um, and, and that now, no, I'm not going to just listen to public health officials. But you know, most people did, most people did what I did. Right. If you look at Ontario, they went, they went along to get along.
0: Um, When we, when we met for coffee and, and, you know, I was, I was trying to get to the, why, what, what motives, motivates people, uh, not, and, and the point you're trying to make, I think, is, uh, people are motivated by something in order to, go along to get along and it's not about what is the right thing to do how do we handle the there's there's uh there's some goods there's some bad maybe which one is worse but they're not they're not are they actually going i'm gonna weigh uh out hitler and he comes out on the side of okay i'll support him because his good outweighs his bad is are they actually making an intellectual decision or they're being driven by something else and when we met over coffee your conclusion to all of this is actually it's people are motivated by fear
1: oh i think i think in germany there was a a great fear among the vast bulk of the population um because they could they could actually see it what what is that expression that uh, has been used even in western countries when when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. If you lose your job, it's a depression. But of course, the in the interim, while you're seeing maybe five neighbors lose their jobs, you're getting scared because you're saying, when's the, when's the jig up for me? You know, um, I think there was a lot of, I think that people are primarily motivated by fear. Um, and sometimes just Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference even between fear and self-interest. I mean, you know, so you start weighing things. Okay, yeah, maybe I won't lose my job if I'm in Germany, right? You know, maybe maybe I'll be okay. I'm in the steel industry and I've been working at this plant a long time. And yeah, maybe I'll be okay. But, you know, I saw 10 years ago, the, the price of bread would cost, you know, 87 times more than I could afford now. So am I really, do I really want to trust these current people? This guy says he has a plan. You know, some of it sounds a bit wacko, but he says he actually has a plan. Um, and maybe I should, you know, in the absence of any other real good choices, maybe I should trust this guy. Um, again, I think a lot of people had the mistaken assumption that even somebody like Hitler could be controlled. I mean, and it wasn't just the average Joe working in the steel plant or in a coal mine. It was very sophisticated, educated German elites who said not to worry. In fact, they told President Hindenburg that. I've seen some of the minutes of the meetings with, with between Hindenburg and some of his uh, bureaucratic staff. And they're saying, you know what? Yeah, the guy's very radical. And, you know, he's somewhat distasteful, but he's gonna. He, it's just gonna be him and a couple of Nazis. He's gonna be the chancellor. It's gonna be him and a couple of other Nazis in the cabinet. The other twelve people are gonna be good, solid German conservative people. You know, Mr. President, don't worry about it. We're gonna keep this guy on a short leash. Boy, were they wrong? But that was what they believed
0: yeah they believe well they believed it and yet hitler had made his agenda very clear and so they basically thought no they so they ignored um a, a serious danger a serious threat for some other reason and I, I like the way you talked about fear versus self-interest and i i have my own theory about fear i talk about it from time to time is is uh fear like not everyone who's operating under fear feels afraid. They're actually, they've manip- done, manipulated their lives in such a way to avoid what they're afraid of. And so therefore they actually feel quite secure because of the protections they've put around themselves. But they're there because they're afraid, right? right? But they're not feeling afraid now. So we at least tell them, oh, you're doing this because you're afraid. They say, no, I'm not afraid. but they're completely um uh, motivated by what you've called self-interest and when we do that and we're not really thinking about the common good we're not thinking about our neighbor we're not really thinking about our families long term Like we might be thinking about our money in the bank but we're not really thinking about what these decisions are going to mean for our loved ones for the long term um we've got our eyes on self and the immediate, and mm-hmm. and that's how we end up being seriously duped, and we sell—we basically sell our souls to the devil,
1: whether I th- I metaphorically
0: or actually. That's what's happening. Yeah, actually I, think
1: actually, I, I think you're actually—I think you're—you're a hundred percent correct. I mean, I think that's what we do too often. Um, it, in the case of the German people, I mean, I—I I would say there was an obvious, it's obviously self-interest. If you if you look at your neighbors and you see one by one, the dominoes are falling and they're all losing their jobs. You've still got yours. I do think there's, obviously there's an element of self-interest. If you, if you say, well, that guy says that's not going to happen to me if I vote for him. So you're, there's a self-interest, but you're also at that point also, I think operating in a kind of a general atmosphere of fear because you're you're saying, I, if I don't vote for him, I could be next. I'm the one who's going to be on the chopping block next. Um, but I think I think there's always a kind of a combination, I guess, and or elements of both in people's political decisions. I mean, I I don't I don't really know the answer to you know to to human nature. I think human nature being what it is. I suspect our our first instinct again by my recent personal experience will be go along to get along. And I don't consider myself a coward. I mean, I like I'm not a physical coward. I go hunting in bear infested woods with a bow and arrow. So I'm not a physical coward. I mean, I know what a bear can do to me and it it disturbs me if I think about it a little bit, but I <laughs> you know, I do it. Um, maybe because I have an overestimation of my skill as a marksman, it doesn't matter. But yet, um, you know, if you, if, if you were to tell me, well, and I'm looking, I'm looking at our economy now and I'm saying, wow, I'm pretty, I am a little worried that we are going to descend into some kind of a pretty deep recession and it's going to last a while. It's not going to be one of these six months and done things. I don't think we're going to end up in a great depression, like my, you know, parents did in the 1930s, but I, I, I do think we're in for some very hard times, and that scares me a little bit or worries me a little bit. Um, it's not enough to, I mean, I, it's not enough to make me. If some right wing or left wing wacko party came in and said, well, "I've got the answer to this," I'd say, "Yeah, right." I'm, I'm going to stick with what I know. Um, but, you know, after 10 years of that, I would hope I wouldn't vote for the wackos, but I can't answer that question now. I hope I never have to face it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, so this is why I'm doing the Thinking Biblically podcast, because I believe that the Bible actually has what we need to be able to navigate these difficulties. Certainly, uh, the Bible speaks against, uh, go along to get along. The Bible speaks into our fears, and calls us to live sacrificial, otherly lives. Um, I, I don't think enough of us realize how much the Bible calls us to think for ourselves, not completely independently for ourselves, but that we're not to be manipulated by the forces around us. We, we should be able to um, analyze the situations that we're in, and come to a very clear, intelligent and godly decisions about things. Sometimes uh, those decisions will be more popular than other times. Um, but you know, even the fact, uh, whether right or wrong on your part, you looked at what you decided medically with regard to the vaccine, and then come to the point of you know what? I no, I I didn't do that for the right reason. I don't think that was a uh, an informed decision. I'm going to take a different uh, approach now. I get the impression. That and for many of us, and, and I'm a dad. Uh, you know, my wife and I raised all these kids. When I've made a decision about my children, and I maybe I've I've punished them, or or allow, or on the other allowed something to later on go. You know what? That was the wrong thing to do, and maybe I should apologize for doing the punishment or doing the permissive thing, and take uh, and and allow myself. Uh, the humility to admit, I did wrong, and now we're going to take a different course. There seems to be we live in a day, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to get on your track, and you're supposed to stay on it. And And we call that integrity, when it's not. You know, we need to be people of truth and be people who are humble enough to, to change course when when necessary. And I want to plead with the people listening and watching this that... Um, to look at what's going on, whatever it is, and whether in a little microcosm of your own personal life and your family, but in the in the bigger things too, to be able to, you know, are we dealing with monsters out there, and and how do we address them? No, no matter how popular they might be getting, and do the hard thing and make the hard decisions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's that that speaks to you know how the kind of lives really that we, we all should strive to live. We are at various times going to fall short. It's inevitable, but yeah, I I think we should strive to live that way. Um, It's (laughs) one of, one of the advantages and disadvantages that you have when you're a professional historian, of course, is the advantage or disadvantage of hindsight and you know, yes, we we should have, as individuals, we should, I guess you called it the humility, we should have, I, I would say even to some extent, it is integrity to admit when we're wrong. You know, we, we should be able to do that without, you know, kind of defending something that's indefensible to the last possible minute. We, sh- we, should, we should do that. We, we should be able to do that. Um, I I think there are things in scripture that that point us that way and and should point us um, away from go along to get along. I I think that's true. But again, I would point out I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a political scientist or a sociologist. Human nature being what it is, it may well be that our first impulse is to go along to get along. Um, because it's easier, because the first thing we're even if we're we're not wired that way, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is, what can I how do I best protect my family? as an example. So for again, the, the German steel worker in Düsseldorf or what a Darmstadt or whatever in 1932, maybe he's thinking that and he's saying, Okay, how do I best protect my family? Well, I need to keep my job. How do I do that? Um well there's all these parties to vote for in the yeah, upcoming yeah. federal elections here in in Germany and maybe yeah i have some doubts about this guy but you know in the interests of my family in the interests of keeping that job maybe he's got the answers that all these other politicians who i've been voting for for 10 years 12 years, whatever. Maybe they, maybe they don't, maybe they don't know what they're doing. So, So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily evil what some of these people did, you know, by voting for it. I think, think, you know,
0: and this, uh, our, our first inclination unto the people that we're with should be proper, should be to connect, to, to keep peace. And I think that's all good. And, in and, uh, that's the good part of human nature Uh, but at the same time we need to be alerted that there really is evil in the world and not everybody is our friend and not and not everybody has our best interests in mind and there are economic and political factors to deal with and i I wish i wish this whole life thing was a lot easier than it is um and the, the warning is and most of the time you know what we should go along to get along you know you, you're you're with your buddies and you're 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 out there and you're playing a game and somebody wants to do it this way and other person wants to do it that way like let's not make a big deal about everything like not everything has to we don't have to be independent thinkers all the time with everybody uh we don't need to be a nuisance or the the, the sore thumb or however you want to call it um Uh, We shouldn't be arrogant and and, and pushy and, and all that sort of thing. But then there are these other serious things that, and what's interesting is most of us, if we take a deep breath, we know there's something fishy going on. And some of these things need more careful thought to go, well, are we dealing with are we dealing with a niggly problem or are we dealing with a monster that's going to take over and and that's part of what we're talking about here and and I want to encourage people for our own day you know what is really going on be alerts and and don't don't just go into the gear of go along to get along and you know th- this is this is how I live leave me alone because that gear is going to take us over the cliff
1: yeah, I mean, I, 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 there, there's enough examples, I guess, in history, where people, maybe even sometimes with what they perceive to be good intentions, um, made terrible choices, um, and yet, you know, at the time, without the benefit of hindsight, it, it took a certain foresight, or it took a certain I guess, willpower to go against the, the grain. Um, it's not easy to do because I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about the modern life is that I guess we always assume that things will always, at least in our society, our kids' lives will be better than our life. Like there will always be progress, Things will always improve. Ultimately, we may sometimes take a step or two back, but that that we are on this inevitable course to to betterment. And unfortunately, that's I guess I'm increasingly learning. Um, I I learned it to some extent as a historian, and maybe I'm still learning it is that that's not true. Right. Maybe progress. First of all, we have to, I think, always know what what is progress. I mean, a a German in 1935 would have said, as the German economy was beginning to get more robust and everybody was working, you know, your full employment, a German would have said, hey, he's progress. That was that's progress, because look where we were in 1931 right four years later full employment you know I've got money in the bank I can take little vacations I put money down on a car (laughs) you know like I've got all this stuff to look forward to you know things are good you know yeah okay I can't vote anymore and like you know yeah some of my Jewish neighbors you know I seem to be kind of marginalized I've sort of lost touch with them because you know the the They sort of state of themselves now. Um, I guess I feel a little bad about that, but, you know, life goes on, right? It's that going along to get along thing. Um, So, but this idea of, I, I think of progress, right? So, so a lot of people in Germany and most people, I guess, in before the war in 1935, 36 would have said, Um, Yeah, this is progress. We're better off now. You know, that famous uh, line from one of the American presidential elections, are you better off now than you were four years ago, right? Well, if somebody had asked the average German that, they would have said yes, absolutely, absolutely. The fact that I can't vote anymore, well, you know, who cares, right? Um, And then also, yeah, this idea, I guess, that we have this notion that progress should or is inevitable. Well, uh, I've certainly come to question that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I think, you know, nobody wants to be a party pooper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, yeah, who's going to be the one to say the emperor has no clothes? And so anyway, on that note, um, I just want to thank you for doing this uh, with me today. And obviously we could have been talking a lot longer and maybe, uh, you can come back sometime. We can explore some of these or other subjects, uh, again, other subjects again, you know what I mean? We'll do this again yeah. to explore other subjects. So Howard, thank you so much, uh, for doing this.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It was uh, very interesting, um, very stimulating, as always, when we have discussions.
0: So, very good. thanks. Well, I hope other people have been so stimulated. And if you have any questions, you can contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. If you have any comment, uh, comments or questions for Howard, uh, he's requested that you send them to me and I'll pass them on to him. And so again, uh, you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org, or you can put comments in the comment section below.